Hello and welcome to All Things Small Business, brought to you by DAU. I'm Ken Karka, DAU Small Business Learning Director. This series is offered as a continuing dialogue between government, industry, and academia on acquisition-related issues that impact small businesses who support the critical defense industrial base. Let's join today's conversation. Welcome to All Things Small Business. I'm your host, Anthony Rotolo, and this is the show where acquisition and small business meet. We bring together business owners, contract experts, policymakers, and stakeholders, and we explore the issues facing small business and acquisition professionals as they work together to overcome challenges in a government and defense context. With me for today's episode is Brett Darcy, Vice President of Research for Heron Systems. They are located in Alexandria, Virginia, and their focus is upon artificial intelligence and swarming autonomy. This technology is being used in air combat applications as we speak. Brett, welcome to All Things Small Business. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. This is very exciting. You know, I'm, I'm going to just restrain myself from asking about the swarming autonomy right now, because I <laughs> don't know what that means, and I'm eager to find out. But I want to just uh, take it back a step. You folks were in kind of a support services position in terms of your marketing and what you were doing. You transitioned from that to research and development. And what I wanted to ask you is, from a small business perspective, wading into that space, what kind of competition were you up against there, again, as a small team in a world of very, very big players? Right. In a world where uh, you know hardware resources and, and facilities can be just as important as having good ideas, right? So uh, I think the first one was we had to be, uh, we had to recognize that we were not going to build state-of-the-art laboratories or manufacturing facilities or anything like that. So that that limited our market uh, approach, right? So we we were traditionally, like you said, a sports services contractor, and and what we were specifically doing was for naval aviation. We were doing test and evaluation in laboratories. So we were building and writing the software that allowed us to pull mission systems and things like that out of aircraft and put them into laboratories and test them more, more uh, expansively and, and more cost effectively than you could in, in live flight. And that software background was, was very important because a lot, some R and D can be software based. It can be algorithms based. It can be very facilities friendly, right? I mean, if you have the right computers and access to some of the, uh, of the supporting components around that, uh, we could make a credible play. So we chose our market purposefully. It was related to our, our core business. And then from there, the competition really boils down to R&D has consolidated a lot over time, right? You know, the traditional model everyone thinks of are, are these corporations investing in their own product lines, but in the DoD space, that's not really what happens. Since there's no really large commercial market outside of the DoD customer, um, you know the DoD customer ends up having to pay for a lot of the R and D as well. So we were looking at large established players who have brand recognition. They have the resources to throw large numbers of people at, at both the capture efforts and the execution. 
They have relationships with these customers that are, have been built by prior good work and uh, over, over many, many years. So, you know, the question becomes, who is Heron Systems? I mean, to be honest with you, half the time when we have introductions, they mispronounce our name or Heron Systems or Heron Systems. You know, I mean, no one says that to Lockheed Martin, right? They're not, they're never Lockheed Martin or anything like that. Oh, uh, any reason for the name Heron? I was just curious. Yeah, so we were we're headquartered and founded down in Southern Maryland, you know, right off the Chesapeake Bay. And our our founder just really liked blue herons, and we were working naval aviation, and so it's a big bird that flies, you know, all over the water. So she thought it kind of made sense. Um, <laughs> so it's not great for what we do now, but it's it is what it is. It's who we are. Well, hey, the company flew, so uh, it worked out. <laughs> so. We we have we have some some like who are you and what are you doing here type hurdles to overcome. Uh, so you know it was our, our competition is kind of our 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 lack of of brand and our competition is also the established players in the field. Of course, bigger isn't necessarily better. We know there's advantages to being smaller. What is your value proposition that that you are stating to your prospects? Uh, yeah, so we, we definitely are relying on the fact that that, that is uh, true or at least plausible. And, and what we've found is we provide kind of two things, um, related to the, you know, to the, to customer service, which is first we have the, uh, the, the luxury of being able to focus. So we, we have a small team of very bright people. It's growing, but it's still very small. So uh, internally, we have very strong relationships across our team. And so when we apply our collective brain power towards solving a problem, we focus our attention much, much more than, say, a larger organization that is doing, you know, many things at once, right? We can, we can focus the entire corporation's attention to a specific customer uh, if, if need be. And we can also have the luxury of pivoting if the research requires us to. So that that's one. And, and then second, there's a customer service aspect in terms of working with the customer and taking the customer's priorities seriously as a priority for us as well. If you take a typical, you know, research and development contract, that's, that's say, say between 10 and $15 million over three years, that's a very large award for us, you know, and, and it would, it would compete with the largest awards you've ever had. So when that happens, what the customer gets is our undivided attention. You, you become our largest customer. So we are going to practically bend over backwards in order to hit our targets, make sure you walk away from that engagement happy, and that we develop something that is very, very uh, mature and capable. And, and that's, that's, that does two things for us. One, you know, it's, it's always nice as a small business to be able to look your customer in the eye and say, yeah, we, Heron Systems, remember who we are. We did that for you. And two, we don't have a hard, a huge corporation behind us that's constantly building other technologies that we can apply for the next sets of proposals, the next, the next year's worth of activity. So we're building our stuff, our technologies, our solutions, our, our, our product stack on the fly. And so when we build something for some research project for DARPA today, we have the vision that we have, it has to exist in a really good state so that later, you know, we can turn around and use that, you know, stand on top of that to, to empower our next set of programs. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're not, I'm hearing a couple of benefits here is that your customers are not just one of myriad customers, not not that large contractors can't be focused and very customer centered, but you literally, this is your focus. It might be your sole focus for a time, that one customer. And it also sounds very symbiotic in the sense that working for that specialized need, you're building your core capability on that problem. I want to kind of pivot off of that because you've got some very interesting applications going on right now in the realm of air combat. There's a great article right now I just want to mention for our listeners' benefit. For a fuller read, go out to defensenews.com. Look for AI's Dogfight Triumph, a step toward human-machine teaming. Brett, tell us what that article is all about, please. Yeah, so around August of, of 2019, DARPA, working through a United States Air Force contracting vehicle called ArcNet, released a solicitation for what they call their Alpha Dogfight Trials. And, and what, the, what that was was a, a competition to develop uh, artificial intelligence agents that are capable of controlling an F-16 in simulation to conduct 1v1 dogfighting. Uh, in this case, within visual range and only using the gun. So it was designed as a three-phase competition where uh, there'd be a group of companies and, and academics who are building these agents. They would fly off against each other and some government-provided agents to see who can build the best one. And the, the final trial was going to be a multi-step competition where you would you basically play around Robin, you'd get a seating, and then we'd have a single elimination tournament like they had in Karate Kid, if anyone can remember that far back. You did not sweep um, the leg, though, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> you, you don't play we, that we, way. We were, uh, some of our competitors would have said we were slightly dirty and that we <laughs> uh, violated all safety rules that most human pilots would, would abide by and, and they, I think the pejorative of du jour was uh, hyper aggressive um, fighting. So, but we were we we uh, we had been working on something called deep reinforcement learning to do some things internally, just kind of to try to figure out how, what that was. We saw the potential in it, and when this this competition came around, and and actually I can thank North, some of our friends at Northrop Grumman for for letting us know about it we decided to jump on a plane and head to Las Vegas and give a pitch to the DARPA program manager and the assembled team for the Alpha Dogfight Trials. And so we did, we were successful and we got into the program. Um, we were one of eight competitors. The competitors ranged in size from, you know, a four person company all the way up to Lockheed Martin. Uh, and over the series of what should have been six months ended up being 10 because of COVID. Um, we were able to win every single trial and at the final trials, which was uh, streamed live on YouTube, we placed first in pretty convincing fashion, beating Lockheed Martin 16 to four in the final and beating a United States Air Force weapons school graduate pilot in virtual reality 5-0. That's a wonderful story in itself. That's really astounding. This is totally a merit-based win of that business based on that competition. Yeah, the uh, the, the proposal to get into the program was a 12-slide presentation, right? So, I mean, it, my, my, my lead engineer and I spent maybe four or five days developing the proposal in its entirety, including a long night in a hotel room rehearsing it the day before we we gave the pitch. And 
every team had 20 minutes to pitch and then 10 minutes for questions. And then you're escorted out of the room. And, uh, so it was, it was very merit-based and yeah, you, you had to, you had to produce in order to, to, to win. How big was your team at that time? The whole company or the team working on the dogfight? The team for this dogfight, because you were mentioning the range of sizes. Where did you fit in? Yeah. So we were the third smallest company um, and we had by far the smallest team. We only had two people working on it. By the end, we expanded to three and we also had four interns for a month there and over the winter. But yeah, we were, we were a lean, mean operation. That's remarkable. Getting into some of the internals of that article, I, I want to just ask you, though, about the nature of the challenge. It gets into this place where AI picks up where human decision-making leaves off, and it's it's a very, very interesting topic. Can, can you just explain those dynamics, what it means to a jet fighter and what your challenge was? Yeah, so, um, you know, to, to be honest with you, Dogfighting is a very well understood problem, and it's something that is pretty straightforward uh, in terms of, uh, you know, it's a bounded problem, which makes it a really good problem for artificial intelligence. And, and where I think where the where the the article in question, but 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 you know, also the more general questions that we have fielded since we won the competition come from a place of of trust in the AI to make these kinds of highly complex decisions where frankly life and death is is on the table right i mean if 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 this if a pilot was flying with our ai as it currently stands they would not like it it would be a very uncomfortable experience for them because our some of our tactics we've developed are way outside of the norm for a a man fighter but if we look forward you know and assume we're going to continue to develop this technology where where the real question lies is if we have these things in combat uh, alongside humans, are they going to be capable of the same kinds of decision-making and can, are they going to be safe and effective and reliable partners? And that's, that's a question that really becomes harder as we leave the dogfighting regime and we get into things like combat air patrols or suppression of enemy air defenses and things like that. I mean, those are much, much more complex things and they, they involve many different aircraft and other assets providing a multi-agent team. It's a and, much more open arena, many, many more variables than yeah, a, you yeah, know, the, uh, a finite amount of people fighting in, in jet fighters. Right. 1v1 is literally, right. you know, do you know where the other aircraft is and go? You know, in this case, we have, we, we, to be nerdy about it, we call it the observation space and the action space. You know, the observation space explodes and the action space explodes and and having the ability to address both of those problems safely reliably and effectively is is still an open question i mean i would tell you that the technology we use to develop our ai was chosen because it offers the potential to address those very large action and observation spaces. Can, so, can you just define those, the, the action and observation spaces? Yeah. So, so observation is what do you need to know about the world in order to make a decision? What can you see with your sensors? You know, so humans have this real great advantage because like think about in like an F-35 or something, they have sensors, they have data links that are feeding them that information. And an AI would have that too. But what a human also has are eyes and ears, and you know they can they can look around in the world. They have a language they can speak with others. 
obviously they have a creative brain that can learn very quickly. So humans have some inherent advantages that AI may not. AI is going to have some advantages that humans do not, right? So, but it's an open question whether or not, you know, I would say for humans, the observation space can be overwhelming. They can be presented so much information, they can't process it. And we rely on on heuristics or uh, other kind of like our gut or training, things like that to say, okay, well, I've kind of recognized this situation before. I, I have a pretty good solution here. Or as like an AI is going to be forced to have, have you seen this before? Do you know what to do? They're, they don't have intuition. They just have the algorithm. And so there is this inherent human mistrust of that. You know, how can you possibly learn enough to be good in every single scenario presented to you? And, and getting past that mistrust is something that this technology really needs to overcome before it actually gets into the field. As I was understanding it in the article, and, and if I'm tracking with you, there are situations where things are just out of the visible range of a pilot that the AI is sort of crunching on. And is is that the gap of trust of like, are is the pilot going to accept what the AI is recommending? Yeah. So there, there's kind of, there's kind of two intertwined things there. One is ideally, I think the technologists and, and, you know, kind of innovative thinkers are, are thinking of these technologies as, well, let's put AI on a drone and let's put it out as like a, a screening force in front of our man force. And let's let them do the really dangerous jobs before the man fighters encounter the really dangerous areas. So you can think of like surface to air missiles, you know, those are lethal for modern fighter aircraft. But if you have a swarm of drones that can take those things out before, you know, the man fighters who have to do the ground attack mission get there, that's a good win. But the problem is we don't give the autonomy, the legal, moral, and ethical authority to make their own engagement decisions. That's what you mean by swarm autonomy that we touched on earlier? Swarming is just having many of these things operating together in relatively close space, right? I actually like to use the word multi-agent autonomy because swarming implies, you know, really dense formations, which we don't necessarily need to use. But so if if we have this legal, moral, and ethical problem of, of allowing these things to operate fully autonomously, then we need to have a human in the loop and that makes things difficult. And it, and so where we're running into challenges now and where we are trying to think through things is and, and work with our customers now to kind of help define the realm of the possible is to investigate these different concepts of operations while simultaneously just demonstrating that the technology is able to be trustable. You know, so can it go over the horizon and reliably report back what it's seeing? without having to broadcast the actual sensor information, you know? So think of a, think of an agent that ha- or an autonomous system that just has a really good radar on it and it can go and look and say, okay, the target is here. And that's all it does. Can we trust that information? Like we would, if a analyst was looking at satellite information with a, you know, a, a, a basically an image of the ground, you know? So that kind of trust is is also in play. Sure. Is it a lot of times AI is described as doing stuff that frees up the human agent to focus on higher order decision making? Is that what you're describing? Yeah. Yeah, so in the follow-on program for the dogfight trials called ACE, um what DARPA is looking at amongst some other things is can we uh, use the autonomy to fly the aircraft safely in a combat scenario? and allow the pilot to put his head down and focus on a battle management task instead of flying the aircraft. 
you know, uh, Dr. Grayson, the uh, director of DARPA Stowe, talks about, you know, using AI to allow the human to not have to push all the buttons, you know, so that's to your point of freeing the human to the higher order decision-making versus the lower order operation of the combat system. And, and that's our internal idea is that that's likely the first place you're going to see AI actually be used effectively in the field is, you know, make, draw the analogy to like, if you have kids who play video games, they have a controller with like six buttons on it and they can do these amazing things with those six buttons because the game hides all the complexity of operating that whatever, right. That tank or that aircraft or whatever from the player. Well, in modern military systems, that's just not the case. The complexity, there's lots of buttons and knobs and things they have to do in order to do something simple, like, you know, point the radar in the right direction. And, and we're continually to develop technologies to abstract away that detail from the human. But what, what AI can do is it can do the full stack without changing the underlying systems. You know, it can push all the buttons. It can do all that if you just let it do it. So part of the follow-up program is to, is to start investigating that. Yeah, I had seen a photograph along those lines where it was a comparison between like the uh, instrumentation in an Apollo manned panel versus the space shuttle versus what Elon Musk is coming up with. And it's like just kind of a joystick and a screen, yeah. you know, compared to being dazzled by all the knobs and switches and an array of things. That's literally all about the software behind the panels, right? I mean, you could theoretically create a button that's like, press the button, win the battle. If the software is capable of doing all the other decisions behind that, that assess the current situation and then make the action choices to win the battle. Now that's not probably realizable, but that's the power of software. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it can, we're moving from these electromechanical systems and then we went into digital systems and now we're getting into AI infused systems. And I think that, where the the big change that someone like you or me is going to notice in an AI infused system is that the machine should look a lot cleaner and simpler. Right. And I think connected to this, this idea of reliance on the AI versus the role of the human and, and one eclipsing the other potentially, there's an ethical dimension. Again, I'm going to reference that article. It touches on how we view the Russian and Chinese approach to these problems as being less ethical than what we want to do. Is that a function of not having the human eclipsed by the AI? Uh, eclipsed is hard. Everyone thinks of like Skynet and, you know, becoming self-aware and things. Sure. It's more like my understanding, having no direct experience of the Chinese and Russian uh, approach, but my understanding of it from articles like, like the one you're referencing is that they don't make much distinction, if any, between whether or not a human has to be in the loop when a, a lethal munition is in, is used. So the American approach, one of which I'm much more familiar with, is that a human must be the one who makes the decision to release the weapon. And that is necessarily imposing limits on what the AI you're developing can do, which then imposes further requirements and limitations on the concepts of operations for these next generation platforms and systems of systems that we're developing that's going to use AI, right? So if a human has to make the decision to shoot, it's okay to have autonomous shooters, 
But now we've introduced the requirement that the shooter must communicate back to a human enough information to allow the human to make a legal, moral, and ethical decision and do it competently. Well, that's that's a big requirement. You know, that drives a lot of system requirement downstream. And ultimately that can limit the portfolio of uses, right? So we get into these, you know, highly contested environments where someone can jam you. We got to send information back still. How do you overcome that? So things like that are, you know, there's this, this cascade of effects that the Chinese and Russians just may not have. They may be okay with the collateral damage. Yeah, it's a fascinating problem and trade-off, I suppose you would say. Again, I'll reference that article. If you go out to Defense News, search for AI's dogfight triumph, you should hit it. I want to move us over to some of the small business aspect of this again. There is the SBIR, which is the Small Business Innovative Research Program. How has that benefited your company? Uh, well, immensely. Uh, it, it's how it's that is literally how we got our start doing R and D. So you had mentioned before we were a support services provider, and that we kind of pivoted toward R and D. The mechanism through which we did that was SBIR contracts in 2011 when I was first thinking this through and I pitched it. You know, the idea of going after an R and D market to my corporate leadership, they looked at me kind of side eyed and said, uh, "We don't have the cash flows to support." making those investments. I pitched to them the SBIR program and said, this could be a nice way of using other people's money without diluting, you know, our corporate ownership structure to, you know, kind of move from A to B or at least prove the concept. And they said, fine, go ahead and go win one. If you can, we'll invest in the proposal. And I was able to win one, you know, kind of leveraging a customer we were already working with. They happen to have something out there. Coincidentally, that's how we started doing machine learning. And, you know, we were able to turn that phase one into a phase two. Simultaneously, we were able to win another phase one with DARPA and turn that one into a phase two. So all of a sudden we, we looked up and we had a couple million dollars of funding and we were off and running. That had to be a very bold step for you because R&D dollars are hard to come by. Were you nervous about failing as you kind of pivoted toward that? So that's why the SBIR program was so essential to us, right? So we could afford to fail because we weren't taking on debt and we weren't self-financing. We were building a prototype for a defense customer. So we were able to use you know, funded research in order to place our bet, so to speak. We were able to to find our initial hires. Like I, I went to the University of Maryland's computer science department and said, hey, I need somebody who can do machine learning at a very high level. Do you have any, you know, grad students who are getting ready to graduate I could I could talk to? And I was able to find my first hires that way. And I was able to bring in my that beginning of my brain power was through that. And you sleep at night a lot better knowing you have a million dollars in your back pocket to to spend. In, in a year and a half in which to to prove yourself and and get your business model in order then if your corporate leadership is saying hey you know you're burning 100 grand a month where what are we doing here so the SBIR program was was essential and we still use it i mean we don't it's not the basis of our funding anymore but it is you know every every period when a new SBIR topic list drops we are all over it we we, we analyze it as a team and we use it as ways to expand or reinforce the science and technology basis upon which we're building these R&D contracts and proposals. How do you decide to pursue or pass on an opportunity? 
Good question. So first and foremost, we maintain internally a kind of a roadmap, uh, a, a through line of, of uh, you know, that of, of technologies and solutions that we are targeting to develop and, and then, you know, pointing towards an end goal. And if an R&D contract is going to either allow us to demonstrate something on that roadmap or to take the next step down that roadmap or otherwise build something that allows us to achieve or, or to have something that will help us achieve a step in that contract, we will look at it pretty seriously. Second step is, is it scoped and sized in a way that we can credibly pursue the work? So it is often common that a contract, and this happened all the time in the services world, and it's one of the reasons why we, we tried to, to diversify, but it's oftentimes in R&D where the scope of the work or the resources required to perform the work credibly are just larger than what we currently have. And in that case, we may have to look for a teammate, become a subcontractor or something like that. That's not a, that's not a no-go step there, but it is something we have to think about um, and, and analyze. And then thirdly, do we have a credible set of technologies and innovative ideas to advance those technologies to solve the problem? And oftentimes we'll look at a problem and say, man, that's fascinating. We have no idea how to solve it. So I think of all of the cybersecurity R&D that's out there these days as a good example. On paper, it's a good fit. A lot of AI technologies are applicable there. It's a software-based problem, and you can do a lot with a few people. But we have no idea how to solve those problems. It's just not what we do. So we, we, have, to be, we have to be very purposeful in what we select and make sure that it kind of hits our core competency pretty squarely. A company has to know its limitations, to paraphrase a famous movie quote, <laughs> and, you know, and after the dogfight trial stuff, I mean, we received so much inbound business development interest. We had to learn to say no, sure, because there is a real risk of overextending your key people. And ultimately in R&D, when you're developing new novel algorithms and, and new novel systems, your key people are the, are the, the, really the resource that drives everything. Sure. I have to imagine sometimes it's not the problem. It's just the scale of what you're being asked to do, or you just have to say, no, no. Yeah. I mean, we've had to be very diligent. So we're going through a round of hiring and expansion right now. And it's, it's like doing a fantasy draft. You know, you sit down you say, okay, you know, who are my first round picks? Like I have to have these people who can do independent problem solving and, and develop the solutions. Do I, do I, can I find any of those people, you know, how much are they going to cost? Where do I find them? How do I recruit them? And then you have to layer in your workers, right? You know, your tight ends and your linemen and people like that who can, who can do the, the engineering work, who can, they're learning to be those, those, you know, top level people but they can do the, the you know, the, the data cleaning, the uh, whatever, you know, the software development. And we have to, we, as a small business, we, we're, we're attempting to layer talent in a way that allows us to credibly, you know, take on this exciting new work while simultaneously maintaining our execution capability. Yeah, that's a very tricky balance. And mm -hmm. I understand that well, trying to form teams where you've got the right mix of talent and you don't spread them too thin. And you can apply the higher order strategic people to help maybe the more junior people and get the job done. There's a lot to think about. And the stakes are high in what you're trying to accomplish with a new contract. So I can truly understand that issue. 
Brett, what advice would you offer other small companies that are venturing into the R&D space? Ooh, uh, good question. Um, I think first and foremost, I would say, be sure you know what you're trying to accomplish. So there's a lot of fascinating work in R&D, and it's, it's very easy to get caught up and look at all the things we could do. I think to be successful, what you have to stay grounded in is what are you actually able to do? And why are you the best company to do that work? So do you have a niche? Do you have a some kind of advantage that you can leverage? And once you've found that, and once you've executed it, do not be in a rush to expand out of that niche. You know, Go deep, dive deep into that niche and fully exploit it. And then think about growth a little bit. You know, I mean, we went into this thinking we kind of have two core competencies that we have some value in. We, we had some machine learning and AI ideas and some things we had built internally that gave us kind of a leg up when it came to using reinforcement learning. And we had this swarming robotics thing that was ahead of its time. And we said, okay, those are our two things. That's what we're going to do. And we've been doing it for seven years now. And those are still the only two things that we do. We've been able to grow. You know, we've gone from two people to about 20 now, but we've not lost focus. We have not, we've used focus as our key tool. Yeah, this is, that's a key word. Very disciplined growth. There is a book, one of my favorite books, business books is called Focus. I think the subtitle is The Future of Your Company Depends on It. It's by Al Reese, who is famous in marketing circles for the concept of positioning. He wrote the book Positioning, which is like a marketing classic. And the opening chapters are just like a laundry list of companies that, in the name of expanding their portfolio and diversifying and proliferating product lines and things of that nature, they lost focus and they had very costly failures. So I can see just as a small company, how even that much more important it is to have that disciplined type of growth. Yeah. I mean, you're not, you're not going to get into this and, and pull a Google or a Facebook and become, you know, a billion dollar company in five years. You're just not, I mean, if you are, you're a unicorn, what you're going to do is engage with very fascinating work, meet extremely talented and brilliant people and motivated people. And you're going to produce something that at the end of the day, you can say, yeah, I built that. Look at that thing. And then if if you're focused and if you can execute, and we like to think that we're still on some of the initial steps to down this path, you can follow those initial that initial R&D from advanced concept to proof of concept, prototype to, uh, you know, full rate production, you know, and it's going to take a long time because DOD doesn't move super fast and, but you can build something real and through that effort, you can be successful. And, and I think that, I mean, that's, that's at least our approach to it. And it's served us well so far. I mean, we've been very conservative, but we have been aggressive at the same time, you know, it's kind of focused aggression. That's a very encouraging word for us to close on. My guest has been Brett Darcy of Heron Systems. Brett, I want to thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's been a thrill. It's been very interesting, intriguing subject matter. I think our listeners are going to enjoy this talk. So, Brett, thanks once more, and I'll give you your day back. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Thank you.
This is Ken Karkoff once more. I want to thank our guests for participating in today's conversation. Your insights and perspectives will surely help our listeners. And an invitation to our listeners, if you'd like to participate as a guest in a future conversation, please reach out to me at kenneth.karkoff at dau.edu. Till next time, stay engaged and collaborate across your networks. Everyone's talents and skills are needed within the defense industrial base as we fulfill the national defense strategy together.